Welcome back to the Foreign Desk. I'm Lisa Deftari. With us this week, a good friend, colleague, and someone I have admired for a very long time. And if you follow this space, I'm sure you do too. It's Caroline Glick, a senior contributing editor at JNS and also a senior columnist at both JNS and Newsweek. She's also a diplomatic commentator at Israel's Channel 14, a senior fellow uh, for Middle Eastern Affairs at the Center for Security Policy out of Washington, D.C., as well as a lecturer at Israel's College of Statecraft, which is in Jerusalem. She's the author of, of The Israeli Solution, a one-step, a one-state plan for peace in the Middle East, and Shackled Warrior, Israel and the Global Jihad. I know Caroline's busy working on a third book, which she might tell us about at the end of the show. Uh, she does government and military briefings and received multiple awards in journalism. And what you may not know about her is as captain uh, in the IDF from 1994 to 1996, Glick was a core member of Israel's negotiating team with the PLO and served as assistant foreign policy advisor to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu from 1997 to 1998. She speaks to us tonight from Efrat, Israel, where she lives currently with her family. Welcome to the show, Caroline. Thanks so much for having me, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be on your on your podcast. Of course, a long time coming. Um, as I mentioned, you know, I think whoever follows the Middle East, particularly the Israeli uh, Arab conflict, um, follows your work and has followed it for many years. What has what was interesting to me is. Um, I, I will admit, I thought, you know, all these years, your writing, your research, your reporting is what made you such a tremendous um, expert and writer in this arena. Uh, but I did not know about your time uh, with the IDF, and I did not know more specifically about your time uh, spent negotiating, meaning having that front row seat uh, in, in negotiations between Israelis and Palestinians. So when you talk about the challenges, you were there. You saw things happen. You saw exactly why we cannot mend this rift. Can you talk a bit about that and how that has informed your work? Um, more pessimism, more optimism. How has it gone for you? Well, I, I think that I saw at the negotiating table um, the power of self-delusion for uh, Israeli policymakers at that time during the 1990s because um, there was a real cognizant, cognitive dissonance uh, uh, throughout the negotiating process with the PLO. I, I was a member of uh, Israel's negotiating team uh, at the height of the Oslo years where we negotiated the uh, the major the major agreements, the what's called the interim agreement, uh, where we uh, set down the conditions for the redeployment to, or the withdrawal of Israeli forces from the major population centers in Judea and Samaria uh, and transferred uh, a security, responsibility and civil responsibility to the to the PLO over the major population centers uh, between 1994-1996 and, and, and a slate of other uh, agreements. And during that time, we saw um, a rise, a precipitous rise, uh, the the most precipitous, the steepest rise in terrorist attacks in, in Israel since the 1930s. Uh, we were introduced to suicide bombers for the first time in, in 1994. Uh, which is when we had the first suicide bombing in Israel. Um, and all of this was a direct uh, product of bringing the PLO, uh, led by Yasser Arafat, into Israel's heartland. Um, and yet, despite the fact that this was going on in the streets of our cities, and despite the fact that we had very clear both intelligence uh, reporting that uh, the PLO, and specifically Yasser Arafat, was 
was involved in a lot of this. And we, we saw it in front of our eyes. And the people that we were negotiating with were also negotiating with Hamas and reaching cooperative agreements with them about, you know, uh, separation of powers and what Hamas was going to do and what the PLO was going to do in terms of terrorism. Uh, we saw the lie that the PLO said that they were going to uh, alter their charter, their sort of uh, constitution, which calls in every line for the for the annihilation of Israel, denies Jewish history, denies Jewish peoplehood, redefines the Jews as this uh, just vagrants, uh, religious minorities, sort of like gypsies that have you know, no homeland, no common history, no common anything. And so they were supposed to, uh, they were supposed to massively amend that charter and take out all the parts that called for Israel's elimination. And we saw in real time that they did nothing of the sort. They lied in prime time to President Clinton and to Prime Minister Robin. And yet, despite yes. that, we kept deluding ourselves or our leaders were deluding themselves that none of this mattered, that as soon as we signed a final peace with the Palestinians, that everything that they were doing and everything that they were saying among themselves and all of the terrorism that they were both enabling and in, and in many cases participating in um, was suddenly going to disappear in a poof of smoke and it was all going to be roses and sunshine and balloons and smiling children and doves of peace and everything would be fine. And there was literally a mountain that was always rising of uh, Israeli victims of Palestinian terrorism uh, sitting, uh, you know, at the negotiating table with us and uh, our leaders were just averting their gazes. So I think, you know, it was a real, it was an unraveling experience. You know, I was a very young woman. I was in my mid twenties as a, as a young captain in the IDF and uh, watching this happening. Uh, it, it gave me, it was a very sobering, period in my life. And, and it very much informed uh, the analyses that I've written, the books that I've written, the lectures that I've given, and really my life's work since, which is uh, has been geared toward whether speaking to Americans or to speaking to Israelis, speaking to diaspora Jewry, or speaking to Israeli students, <clears throat> uh, military leaders in both countries, is that for, for a policy of any kind uh, to work, it simply must be uh, grounded in reality. And if you're not willing to countenance reality, when you begin formulating your policies, you will fail. And not only will you fail, but you'll cause grave harm, uh, particularly when you're dealing with national security to your nations. And um, unfortunately, we've seen far too much uh, fantasy-based uh, foreign policy, ideology-based foreign policy uh, by Israel, by the United States, by the states of the free world, really, uh, since the end of the Cold War. Uh, and one would wonder why you continue in this space, having seen um, so many dead ends and, and having to continue on each day writing as if there will be more chances and there will be some sort of light at the end of all of this that will bring about some sort of peace. And we don't even know what that would look like. But when you speak about that reality, when you speak about that approach, I mean, if you had uh, BB's ear right now at this moment, um, what will it take 
across the board, not just from Bibi, but from the international community, from the United States, from the UN, from the Europeans, from Israel, from 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 the Palestinians and 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 all of their different factions. What will it take to get some sort of peace? Um, peace is, is not a rational aim of foreign policy in the sense that peace is an intangible. And uh, policies, uh, belief systems can be aimed at achieving intangible goals, uh, but policies on a national level need to be geared toward reaching uh, tangible goals. And uh, tangible goals mean things like security, they mean things like national prosperity, uh, they mean uh, uh, diplomatic uh, strength, they mean a sense of uh, national, uh, a sense of morality of your of your nation and of of your existence, um, and all of these things uh, lead to peace, because the more powerful a nation is, and the more certain it is of the justice of its cause, the more uh, the more attractive it becomes to partners. And the more uh, it's capable of deterring enemies. Um, and so peace, as the Bible tells us, is predicated on strength. So when you want to pursue peace, you must you must first pursue strength and empowering your worst enemies by giving them territory you need to defend yourself giving them international legitimacy, despite the fact that they remain your enemies, and all of the other things that the uh, peace process with the PLO was predicated on, weaken Israel. They delegitimize Israel because they're empowering a terrorist organization that denies the existence of a Jewish people, denies Jewish history and the right of the Jewish people to their homeland and to self-determination and to political freedom. So if you empower them, you're empowering a force that exists in order to negate your existence. And, and that's what we did. So that doesn't work. And what we found over the past um, decade and a half, more or less, particu particularly since the Arab Spring, mm -hmm. is that the biggest impetus for regional peace was twofold. On the one hand, uh, the digital revolution in Israel, the transformation of Israel into a hub of innovation and technology in a technology-based global economy uh, both increased Israel's national prosperity. Our per capita GDP last year uh, exceeded that of Germany's. We are now over $50,000 per capita uh, income. Just to think about it, at the end of the Cold War, Israel's per capita GDP was 21,000. So we've more than doubled our per capita income, and this is in real dollars. Mm -hmm. um, we're much more powerful uh, militarily. And the second thing that happened as a result of the Arab Spring is that the Arabs, the Sunni Arab states, recognized that the forces seeking to destroy Israel First and foremost, the Islamic Republic of Iran, 
and the Muslim Brotherhood and its aligned terrorist organizations, Al-Qaeda, Hamas, and a host of other ones, are the greatest threats not only to Israel, but to the survival of the Sunni Arab regimes, whether in Egypt or Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, UAE, and so on and so forth. And so they saw that Israel was extremely powerful. They saw that Israel wasn't worried about standing up to the Obama administration when its security required it in, in regards to Iran, for instance. And it recognized that the United States, uh, the Sunni Arab world did, was wanting to uh, disengage from the Middle East after the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan had gone sour. And so they began to seek alliances and cooperative arrangements with the Jewish state for the first time. And again, that's real peace. The Abraham Accords that were reached, we met last time I saw you, was at the signing ceremony at the White House lawn in 2020 between Israel and Bahrain and the UAE under the guidance of of President Trump. But those accords uh, arose in 2013 and in 2014 with the overthrow of the Muslim Brotherhood regime in Egypt and Israel's support for Sisi, uh, who became the president after being the chief of staff of the army and the defense minister, and um, for Saudi Arabia and the UAE against the Muslim Brotherhood and against Iran. Right. And you know what, what's you know what? troubling is about how, you know, um, the media, social media, um, you know, this is where people are getting their information and uh, fr- propaganda, frankly, uh, on these topics. Um, you know, they look at something like the Arab Spring and a lot of uh, whether they're Arabs living in these countries or um, which it's tremendous, right? This The amount of support and actual prosperity that has come out of these deals in both public and private deals has been really tremendous in so many different sectors and in so many different ways. What people don't realize um, is that this was not called the Abraham Accords, but it was called the, the, the Peace Through Prosperity and was offered to the Palestinians first. Right, but the Palestinians didn't want, I mean, this that's the Trump, that's the Trump uh, uh, peace plan. Um, But Trump also was misguided, I think, in some ways in his policies in the sense that for the first three years of his administration, really, he he wasn't interested in a wider uh, Israeli-Arab peace because he still believed that the big prize was the Palestinians. And it was only when the Palestinians rejected his plan and rejected all aspects of his plan and called, you know, his senior uh, his senior advisors. Right. Uh, uh, curse words um, <laughs> that he recognized that uh, it was time to accept the deal that had been on the table really since 2017, which was regional peace, which was an end to the Arab-Israeli conflict. And the fact is that if he had abandoned his idea that uh, he wanted to get to a peace deal with the Palestinian leadership that fundamentally cannot exist in in peaceful coexistence with Israel because they define themselves as Israel's nemesis, Mm -hmm. uh, then we would have had uh, Israeli-Saudi peace probably uh, forged uh, formally uh, in 2019. Right. 
You know, it, you bring up two things that I want to touch upon and get your, your thoughts on. Uh, the first is really how the Abraham Accords, like you said, it, and, it, and it was unfortunate that it happened in the final hours, right, of, of Trump's presidency, where the, the, it became kind of like, okay, the, the, this idea that we can only accomplish anything in the Middle East through, is, is through uh, Palestinian and, and Israeli peace. If we sidestep that entire narrative and go straight to what do we all have in common? And let's focus on that. And that became, like you said, an entirely new diff new world. And, and uh, as you said, if we had had that under the Trump administration, we would have had Saudis signing on to either the Abraham Accords or some sort of normalization um, understanding with, the, with uh, Israel as well. What it brings us to today is you know, this really puts into question how important is is the United States' approval or or guidance or leadership on all of this, right? What do I mean? Is what is you know, right now the Biden administration has taken how many months? We just got an invitation for Benjamin Netanyahu to visit the White House after how many years of Biden being in office? And obviously it was the elephant in the room. It was always talked about why. And he he actually rejected it. And each time for very, very cockamamie reasons, right? It's the judicial reforms inside uh, Israel. Well, you've met with so many heads of state that have human rights problems, that have huge crises going on inside their countries. And you never once mentioned it. What business is it of the United States is what's going on inside uh, Israel. They, he talked about his cabinet members. He talked, you know, there's so many excuses as to why President Biden has not invited Bibi to the White House. And that has become a very um, tangible kind of, you can feel the palpable, a better word for it, uh, issue. I mean, how damaging is this? And really puts again into question, how important is this relationship for what Israel needs to accomplish in the region? Um, it's important in and of itself because the United States is the most powerful uh, nation on earth. It's the undisputed uh, superpower in the Middle East. When you look at the Chinese economy right now, you can also understand that uh, with all due respect to China, and I have an enormous amount of respect for their power and their rise in the region, which is unmistakable and indisputable, uh, China is not a substitute uh, for the United States, either for Israel or for any of the nations of the region. Having said that, um, you know, it, uh, the United S Israel is not, as I mentioned earlier, we're not a weak nation. We're not uh, dependent on the United States for our financial viability or for our, our military viability or for our technological viability uh, today in the way that we were in the past. Um, and and really, I mean, we don't even really need a formal a formal relationship with the Saudis. We're already talking informally about uh, uh, about an agreement, for instance, that will enable uh, cargo transport by trucks right. from uh, the from from the Persian Gulf, from Saudi Arabia through uh, the UAE and Jordan, and to the port of Haifa as a land route uh, to Europe between Europe and Asia that can serve as a, a means to bypass or to augment the uh, maritime traffic through the Suez Canal. And that is exceedingly important uh, to <coughs> the Indians, to the Chinese who both operate ports in Haifa, as well as to the Europeans who are increasingly interested in, in gas uh, from Israel. And they can also receive imports from China and from India through Israel. 
And these are these are major uh, ground shaking uh, infrastructure programs uh, and and cooperative programs that will simply uh, change the face of the Middle East. Uh, the Biden administration talks a lot about integrating Israel into the Middle East. Well, Israel's already integrated into the Middle East, and and unfortunately, I fear that what what Biden really wants to do is compel America's partners to accept Iran, which seeks their annihilation uh, as a legitimate force in the Middle East, which is what the United States main, uh, the, the focal point of their Middle East strategy seems appears to be, that is appeasing and empowering uh, the regime in Tehran mm -hmm. against Israel and Saudi Arabia principally, but against the, the Sunni Arab states and, and the Jewish state. Uh, as a general matter. And so, um, you know, we 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 would like very much to have a formalized uh, relationship with Saudi Arabia. But the fact is that a lot of the things that such an arrangement, such a formal relationship would, would enable mm -hmm. uh, can also be accomplished uh, without such a formalized uh, uh, agreement-based uh, treaty. We can simply do trade agreements. That is, set aside the issue of the of some uh, of some declarative uh uh pie in the sky kind of notion of normalized relations and simply act as though our relations are normal which increasingly they already are anyway you know as an american living in israel i mean it must be very daunting to see that every 4 years or 8 years or so this this formula which is already extremely uh, difficult and challenging has to you you have to recalibrate it and of course you have to recalibrate it all the time anyway because of the so many enemies surrounding Israel and they have to kind of have their own calculations as to what needs to happen but i mean what why is the, why hasn't there been in the last I mean, ever since obama right um a, a this ping-ponging in foreign policy when israel is our main ally and what used to be a very nonpartisan uh, issue that you know both sides agreed on. Israel is our ally in the region. Well, I don't think that. Uh, I mean, it, it's got nothing really to do with anything happening in Israel. It has to do exactly with what you're experiencing in the United States. I mean, you have. Uh, there was a very important article uh, uh, that I read today on uh, Emet Online, E M E T Online, about Robert Malley. And I'm actually discussing it in a column that I'm writing about U.S.-Israel relations, and 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 what what the what the author of the article I, I don't think he was named actually, but uh, what what he argued was that Robert Malley he's, he comes from a very very radical background. His father was a third world revolutionary. He supported Gamal Abdel Gamal Abdel Nasser in in Egypt and every uh, tin pot third world dictator, virulently anti-American, uh, virulently anti-Western. Um, and that was the milieu that Robert Malley grew up in. And rather than being shunned by the American foreign policy elite, he was embraced under the Obama administration as Obama transformed the establishment view among Democrats about what the proper aim of American foreign policy is. I mean, Robert Malley thinks that Israel is evil and doesn't have a right to exist. And he's a fellow at the at the uh, for the Council on Foreign Relations, which is about as establishment as you can get in the United States. So it's not that he's 
his radical views are now considered to be establishment views. Right. Uh, they're shared right. by his childhood friend, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, by mm -hmm. Jake Sullivan, the National mm -hmm. Security Advisor, by Samantha Power, the director of USAID, and by others, uh, very senior administration officials uh, in charge of the U.S. Middle East policy. So, you know, when you have this kind of uh, changing of a generation, a generational shift, and really it's an epical shift because it's never existed before in American foreign policy where you have a party whose foreign policy is informed by a very anti-American worldview that's that rejects Israel's right to exist. I mean, you end up with statements, whether by um, Ilhan Omar right. or Rashida Tlaib or AOC or um, Pramila Jayapal, uh, the head of the Progressive Caucus that mm -hmm. reject Israel's very, you know, the moral right of the Jewish people right. to national self-determination. They claim that Zionism or Israel is a racist state. So this is, you know, these are these are new features uh, in American foreign policy debate, um, and they fundamentally shift the political calculus in the United States among Democrats. So I mean, I think from an Israeli perspective, recognizing uh, that still. The majority of Democrats and the the vast majority of Republicans and the vast majority of Americans support Israel, and that America is a valued ally. That you know, from our perspective, and and we love America and Israel. Israelis are the most pro-American nation in the world. I mean, just as an instinctive thing. Although Joe Biden is angered, you know, the majority of Israelis who voted for this government and, and all he's been doing is boycotting it and, and demonizing it and very clearly taking sides with the political opposition against the government in a domestic political dispute over mm -hmm. judicial reform, which is something that, as you said, Americans shouldn't have any interest in because it's just an internal Israeli debate about governance. Right. Um, but uh, I think, you know, what we have to do is based on our prosperity, our economic wealth, our technological advantages. I think that Israel should bow out of the uh, memorandum of understanding on military assistance to the United States. The United States currently provides Israel, there's an important article about this in Tablet that I'm also discussing in my article that I'm writing now. You know, the United States gives Israel $3.8 billion in, in military aid a year, which is a lot, except Israel doesn't get any of it. I mean, all of it is spent uh, in the United States. They're basically subsidies for U.S. defense contractors. And it's just that rather than transferring the hardware and the platforms to American forces, they're transferred to Israel. Mm -hmm. um, but as a result, we lose $1.3 billion directly as a baseline every year in contracts that we don't give to ourselves. And jobs lost, tens of thousands of jobs in our defense industries are lost every year because of this. And then possible markets for exports of Israeli products. So I think the idea has to be that Israel behave like an ally, a junior partner, but not a client state any longer. And that our long-term procurement policies and our policies for cooperation with the United States and partnership with the United States should be based on partnerships rather than uh, handouts. And that um, I think that's better for us I think it's better for the United States. I think it's better for American Jews not to be caught in the middle of this. 
and uh, and to be attacked all the time for caring too much about Israel when when increase you see an increase all the time of progressive anti-Semitism in the United States over and this is used as a cudgel against the American Jewish community. I think for all of those reasons, um, this you know we should be moving to pivot from a relationship of client state, which made sense 30 years ago, to uh, an actual reflection of what we bring to bear, how we can help the United States, and how we can most benefit from our alliance with the United States at this time. And that's the kind of approach that will be more, less vulnerable to to the results of whatever election. It'll be based on right. clear-cut shared interests. Right. That will be consistent and, and like you said, not uh, at the whim of, of uh, what goes on on social media or at the White House. Uh, you covered so many of, of the points I wanted to get to. Um, of course, uh, President Herzog visiting um, Washington this week, speaking to Congress. And of course, our favorite friends, uh, the uh, radicals inside Congress have already held up their apartheid uh, signs and have made it known that they will not be attending. Uh, this is the issue, Caroline, and as you know very well, day in and day out, this, these are the people and these are the voices that are controlled the narrative on social media and popular opinion about I Israel. And um, we'd like to believe, like you said, that the, that natural relationship and the strength between uh, Israel and the United States uh, is just, in, it's, it's, it's innate. It's, it, it belongs there and will continue uh, for, for many years to come, despite what we see on Instagram and on, uh, you know, among four, four or five women who are just very radicalized inside uh, Congress and, and, and want to spread their uh, influence there. Uh, Caroline, I, want, I don't want to take up more of your time. Tell us about this book that you're working on. I know people will, will be waiting for it and, um, and uh, where they could read your latest work. Um, so my, my articles always appear, just so you know, on jns.org or on carolynglick.com. And you can also watch my my own uh, podcast, Carolyn Glick Show, on on both uh, uh, the JNS.org uh, website and YouTube channel, and also on the Carolyn Glick Show uh, channels on YouTube and on Rumble, uh, and or any of the places where you get podcasts. So, um, so that's one thing. And and regarding the book, you know, I think we've had. Um, an organized campaign of uh, political warfare actually by our left against our government since it came into office in January. And um, what they're claiming is that a very limited, I think too limited, but, but whatever the case, uh, uh, package of judicial reform uh, bills that the justice minister put forward in January um, that uh, that that's going to transform Israel into a dictatorship. And basically what 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 was presented was a very, like I said, a very modest package to place minimal limits on the powers of of the Israeli Supreme Court. You have justices in the United States like uh, the late Antonin Scalia and and uh, and the um, retired uh, federal appellate court judge uh, uh, Richard Posner, as well as uh, Robert Bork. Uh, have all come out very clearly and said that Israel's Supreme Court is has no, there's no nothing that compares to it in the entire world because it's an imperial court. It uh, has veto power through judicial writ of all executive decisions and laws uh, duly promulgated by our Knesset, um, and it has no restrictions on its power because it hasn't accepted any. 
it's seized for itself, uh, invented for itself, really, the power uh, to abrogate laws and government policies based not on law, but on what they've invented, which is called a reasonableness standard, and which is completely subjective. Right. Uh, and so uh, they say that if, if they get to decide, these unelected, actually self-selected judges get to decide uh, whether a policy or, or a law is uh, unreasonable, and if it is, and if they claim that it is, in their opinion, then they can strike it down. And and there's no recourse for the government or for the Knesset under those circumstances. So we have a very, very uh, problematic legal system in Israel. And it goes to all levels of the legal system, including the government attorneys and the state prosecution and the legal advisors to the ministers. So he put forward a very limited proposal that would place very small limits on that power. And as a result, the left has just set Israel on fire. And I've decided that, you know, it's very important to explain what's happening to Americans. Americans usually look at Israel from the prism of its national security, from looking at it from, from the perspective of the Palestinian conflict with Israel, or mm -hmm. Iran's threats to annihilate Israel and Iran's nuclear weapons program and what have you, or from a biblical perspective that Israel is the reinstatement of the, of the, um, of the ancient uh, kingdoms of Israel that that are in the Bible, that the Bible is based on, and um, what that means for Christians in the United States and around the world, it, it's it's fundamental and and it's extraordinary. But Israel is also a living, breathing country. We have a significant issue uh, with uh, what we call what you call your deep state in Israel. We have uh, entrenched elites who are very unabashed about using their power and referring to themselves as elites and gatekeepers that protect Israel's institutions from the uh, hordes called voters who hmm. elect the wrong people to office. So I thought, you know, the, the debate in Israel, because our media leans very far to the left, has been very distorted. And the debate in the United States or the discussion such as it is of the current events in Israel has been predicated on the Israeli media, which means that it's doubly distorted. And then it's simplified by reporters who don't understand what they're writing about um, uh, to try to explain it to, to the regular American news consumer who knows even less. And as a result, you're getting these uh, dis discussions in the United States about how Israel is ceasing to be a democracy that are completely at odds, and, I mean, 180 degrees with what's actually happening on the ground. So I decided that, you know, there's always a question of, you know, risk aversion, how much of your dirty laundry do you want to place outside your door? But I think that, you know, in this case, it's very important, particularly because uh, you experience very similar tumult in the United States with the Black Lives Matter riots in the summer of 2020 and with a lot of the polarization that you're seeing in American politics uh, over there. So in a lot of ways, there are very clear parallels between what's happening here and what's been going on in the United States. And I think mm -hmm. it's important, particularly for American Jews and for uh, Christian Zionists and for everybody who supports a strong, vibrant and dem democratic Jewish state to have a much clearer understanding of what, what is going on here, hence the book. I'm so, I'm so glad. Oh, I'm so glad. I did want to ask you about the judicial reform, but we were out of time. So this was perfect, a little bonus for us. So I did want to get your Thank perspective you. on how we got so distorted uh, on really just wholesalely, like 
you know, describing these reforms as power grabs, as changing the entire landscape of the country. People even throw in concepts like abortion is going to be uh, taken away. And, um, a, a lot of lies. And I thank you for the hard work that you do in correcting these narratives day in and day out. And we look forward to reading your book, reading your book. Um, to uh, understanding these uh, reforms better and understanding the political landscape inside Israel better. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a work in progress, but it is, it is still the only democracy in the Middle East. And those who are criticizing it to no end, I mean, put things in perspective. It's, it's, it's truly a shame. Thank you, Caroline. Thank you so much for your hard, hard work. And please, I encourage thank you to you, Lisa. get on her newsletter. Does put out um, a newsletter with all of her latest and greatest. Uh, grab her books, read her columns, and follow her on social media. Thank you so much, Caroline Glick. And for those of you who would like to subscribe to our weekly podcast, go to youtube.com slash Lisa Daftari. You can also get it wherever you get your podcasts. And to subscribe to our daily top 10 email, go to foreigndesknews.com. See you all next week.